Hello and welcome to the Yes Chef podcast. I'm Steven Savino and this is where I interview chefs, restaurant owners, and culinary social media accounts. And today we have a very special guest who is one of my former chefs at Johnson Wills University and an expert in international plant-based and sustainable cuisines, Chef Brandon Lewis. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? No, hanging in there. Corona uh, is a freaking weird thing, man. <laughs> it's a weird thing. <laughs> just trying to survive, right? Absolutely. Um, so I basically just want to get into a few questions to start here. Um, and it's kind of what I ask a lot of the people that the interview on this podcast and going to interview, which is uh, what made you start cooking and really who influenced you into this uh, industry? Well, geez, I, it's hard to come up with a specific point in my youth where I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook for a living. Um, but I, I began uh, being interested uh, enough to the point where I, I enrolled in a vocational program uh, in my, uh, I think it was my sophomore or junior year of high school. And uh, I did have a very influential teacher um, in that program. And uh, her name was Ann Fulton. And um, I think at the time, I had been working restaurant jobs. I worked at like a Papa John's. I was a teenager, right? So I worked at like a Papa John's. I worked at a Red Lobster. I was working at Red Lobster right then. And, um, and she told me that there was like a, a senior in my, in my class who had, uh, I guess, stolen a car and gone on some kind of drug binge and quit his job, got arrested. Um, uh, a, crazy but he was also the like lead saute chef at one of the best restaurants in the in the city and they were looking for a new chef um a, like a culinary student and so she asked me if i was interested and to be honest i was kind of shocked because i was i was i was pretty immature i was like a goofball in these classes so i, I liked the cooking classes but i was goofing off and not paying attention and just immature at the time and she's like you know there's this opportunity do you want to take it and I'm like oh I kind of like my my job at Red Lobster the girls are really pretty that was kind of my uh that was my my perspective at the time and she's like uh Brandon this is like the best restaurant in town uh sometimes life presents to you uh, a dilemma and you take the bull by the horns and you got to drag it to the ground you're going to quit Red Lobster and you're going to go work at, at at Sweeney's too. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I did. And, um, and that was definitely leaps and bounds above what I was doing at Red Lobster. Um, and uh, I started learning how to actually cook. Um, it was nothing compared to like the stuff I, I did later um, when my career started taking off. But I mean, it was stuff that I was suddenly opening my eyes to this could be a profession that something I do for a living. And uh, that's what actually led me to attend Johnson Wales as a student. Uh, so I actually was, I was the first in my family to go to college and it was wow. that conversation that kind of pushed me in that direction. This idea to, hey, sober up to your reality, quit goofing off and look at the opportunities. You need to make decisions that matter. And Absolutely. so, uh, yeah. And so it was like, that was it. That, that was that pivotal moment. But um, before then I really liked cooking, but I didn't realize I wanted to do it for a living. And that's what made it like for reals, you know? That's a great story. I mean, I hear a lot of great stories from chefs and people like that, but that is, uh, that's very interesting to say the least. Um, yeah, your teachers and chefs in your life, they, they really uh, can influence you. Absolutely. I mean, you guys, John Stewart as a whole has really influenced me to be here right now doing this podcast, for instance. Yeah, and you'll be, you'll be doing this uh, with your own chef learners in the future. So, it, you know, it's a pay it forward kind of career. Absolutely. Um, so talking to you while like while talking to you in class, your resume really speaks for itself. 
And with all the amazing places you worked at, uh, for instance, in England and Switzerland, why go overseas and work at these places? You know, like we have a great, we have a lot of really cool restaurants um, in the Rhode Island area, New Jersey, New York, Boston. I mean, really good restaurants. And you went overseas, right, to England and Switzerland. Why would uh, why yeah. would you go overseas? Well, well, I did. I did do some working. Uh, I worked. I worked in a lot of American restaurants, but I wasn't working at any like top echelon restaurants or anything like that. I think the best I had was a sous chef position, which was bigger than my my present pants at the time. You know, early in my career, um, I, I didn't quite fit into those drawers, is what I'm saying. But um, <laughs> when uh, when I had an opportunity to go to England, um, you know, first of all, I loved travel, and traveling right. was one of the things that I wanted to get out of this career. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to do for a living, I wanted a career that would take me around the world or you know, I would have an opportunity to do that. And so when I, when I did my research uh, before I went to college at Johnson Wales, I was like this, yeah, I could cook anywhere. I think I, at one time I was fascinated and fixated on the idea of being like a head chef of a cruise ship. Um, yeah. and that, that was kind of like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to travel the world in a boat and do this. And, um, and I didn't really do that dream, but you know, as you go in and you open doors, more doors open and you follow different pathways. Um, so, uh, to, you know, back to, back to your point, um, when I decided to go to Europe because I wanted to get some like hardcore experience, I wanted to like earn my chops. I wanted to work at some Michelin star place. And the place, the first place I went to was in Lyndhurst, England. I worked at Les Poussons uh, in Park Hill. And that, uh, that was a, a Michelin star restaurant. And it was like one of the best and like worst experiences of my life all at the same time. And I, I can only just, I can't imagine myself without that experience. Um, right. and I, I worked there for um, just about a year. It was just, it was magnificent. It was um, pivotal. And there was screaming, there was spatulas flying, China being thrown at me and, um, and, you know, learning how to hold your own in the, in a high level kitchen, all that was real and like foraging and like all that stuff. We had our own hunter, the guy would like shoot animals and bring them into the restaurant and I'd have to like skin them and I'd have to like, uh, prepare them. I'd have to pluck geese that he'd shoot. I mean, it was wild. And so this was like the real deal. Um, there was one day I had to clean 28 rabbits he shot. And so oh, this is, wow. like, this is like, you know, the Michelin star, this is what you do. You know, we were out in. Um, Lynnhurst, England, which is where Lewis, er uh, Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland. Like yeah, the real yeah. Alice is buried in the local town church. It's like That's real. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a really spooky forest. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, we would go out there and we'd forage for morels and we'd get um, seps and things like that. And uh, we'd even get, um, let's see, we had, uh, we had seeded a lot of things too. So I had like a garlic garden in there that I would go to and I'd be able to pick the tender leaves and all this. And uh, we'd forage and hunt in there, and then we'd bring it back and we cook it up. That is, that's cool. Talk about freaking, yeah, cool. uh, uh, what is it, farm to table, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was pretty hardcore. Right there. But it, it was also a very authoritative kitchen. And so as much as I learned about fine cuisine, I also learned how not to treat people, how not to manage people. And so um, even in some of your best and worst experiences, you learn a lot and you have to remember um, where that thin red line is and where you want to, where you want your career to be. Cause you don't just cook, you make decisions, you influence others. Um, you have a presence in the industry and a responsibility. And so you start to learn that through your early experiences, what appeals to you. You can see how people respond to authoritative control or to collaborative control. Right. Um, 
those collaborative approaches are the ones that, you know, people like Thomas Keller, he was never the best chef in America by himself. You know, he stood on the shoulder of giants and people came to work with him and they were partners and all this. That's how the best chefs work, you know, with the team. That is awesome. Thomas Keller, great chef too there right now too. I mean, great chef, great chef. Yeah, um, we have quite a few here. But yeah, so it wasn't a snub to uh, to American restaurants. Um, and we were still, you know, we're, we're light years beyond where we were when I was working overseas. But um, I also didn't have all those connections. I made these own, my own connections and I wanted to travel. So I did it. So what we, this is kind of a tough question. What would you say was your favorite restaurant that you did work in overseas? Oh gosh, my favorite restaurant that I worked in overseas might've been the same place. Um, Cause I worked at the Mandarin Oriental and the Cote de Rhone, but um, my French sucks and uh, <laughs> that's Geneva and they speak French in the kitchens there. And it, it's, it's really frustrating to work in a kitchen that you don't speak the same language because it's almost like you've got your arms tied behind your back. Yeah. It, you know, it's super hard to be fast on the line. Um, when you don't understand half of what's being said and you're like, can you just use like common words? Why are we calling the risotto something different every night? I mean, it's, it's, it's risotto. You tell me it's risotto, I'll make you the risotto. But um, anyway, but it was great. Like, uh, you know, there, there were just so many great experiences. I once, I worked with this, um, this woman uh, when I worked in England and her name was, um, I named, I actually named her Anna Maria Chiquita Banana Spaghetti Bolognese. And, um, a long name. Yeah, well, her name was actually Anna Maria, but every day she'd eat a Chiquita banana and she'd stick the sticker to my coat. <laughs> and then um, she worked in my station. And then um, uh, Spaghetti Bolognese, because um, two nights a week, we all had to make staff meal. Like we lived on property, so we'd make staff meal for the whole restaurant. And she always made Bolognese. Like that was her thing. Like everyone else makes different stuff. She would always make the exact same thing and everyone loved it because it's Bolognese. Who doesn't love that? But it was like, that was their thing. So Anne Maria Chiquita Banana Spaghetti Bolognese. And this woman was from, uh, she was from Portugal and she was probably four foot tall and about that wide. She was a really heavy set short girl and the fastest chef I ever worked with in my life. She was so incredibly fast. She would run rings around me and call me a fat cheeseburger eating American. Now, mind <laughs> you, I only weigh like 150, you know? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty, you're not a big guy. I'm a pretty skinny guy. And, um, and she's running rings around me calling me fat and slow. And then um, she, she wouldn't even use a, a cutting board. So Stephen, she would like, um, she had this long carving knife, you know, like those prime rib knives. Yeah. Wooden handle. And this thing's been honed so many times that the, the edge is no longer like two inches wide. It's now like a half an inch wide. <laughs> She's sharpened it and honed it for years. And she would cut in her hands everything. So she cut nothing on a cutting board. So she would do like Brunois in her hand and show it to me. And it was better than mine. And I'm like on a board. She's like, what do you need that for? Like the cutting board. Wow. And she's doing Brunois carrots in her hand. And if she ever hit me with that hand, I'd die. That wow. hand was like leather. You know, if she hit me with that, I'd be knocked out. That takes uh, some cojones. <laughs> well, you know, again, it's the experiences. So you meet amazing people in the industry and you take something from them and you know, meeting her, I learned, Hey, I was a fat cheeseburger eating American. I had to pick up my speed. Right. And, uh, I learned to go fast in the kitchen and I hadn't learned that before then. I thought I was going fast, but that was like, you know, nothing compared to her. Absolutely. Um, so I'm changed topic, not changed topics, but kind of fast forward a little bit here. Um, you were a head chef at the Genesis center, a nonprofit organization. Can you talk more about this? And if somebody wanted to get involved, how would they in the uh, Rhode Island area? 
Well, um, so there was sort of a journey that brought me there. Um, when I was, I was at the university, uh, I was, I, I did my master's degree and while I was doing it, we had a program at the time called the MDP program, Management Development Participant. And so when you were an MDP, you would be hired as either pro staff or you would wind up in a, like a semi quasi faculty position, um, usually manager positions at different um, uh, locations like uh, our dining services and stuff. I was assigned to, um, at the time we had a community service office, which operated a lot like a sustainability office runs these days. And so um, we had sort of a charter um, to teach sophomores um, because sophomores at the university had a 10 hour graduation requirement. Um, they had to do 10 hours of community service uh, to graduate. That's what I meant to say. So uh, we would help them. We, we would teach them about corporate citizenship, uh, food security and, um, and food, um, uh, uh, sorry, literacy. And so I would take sophomores all over the state of Rhode Island. This was my job for the university. And we would do like nonprofit work. So we would help um, with Meals on Wheels. We'd go to the Amos House, which is a local soup kitchen. And we would um, even go to um, farmer's markets and we would actually do farming demos, educating people on how to use Rhode Island produce. And so that kind of s social justice, food sustainability piece really um, was rewarding for me. And so after I had finished my master's, I, I took a couple uh, head chef stints, you know, back in private um, industry, and I, I, I wasn't feeling it. And so um, then I applied to the Genesis Center, which um, is um, a nonprofit that helps immigrants and refugees get affiliated with living in the U.S. Which is awesome. And so, yeah, so um, people coming from all places. It was founded to help the Hmong population, but, you know, we have people from all over the world coming into our, our neighborhoods. And uh, sometimes they need help. So in one of our services, um, we teach English there. Uh, another service is we had a daycare downstairs. So families that needed to take those English classes or job training, they could put their kids in daycare. And then, you know, upstairs we would have uh, the, these other services. So I ran the workforce development stuff related to culinary arts. Um, so I w it was actually a teaching position. So I would teach about culinary arts. I would teach about food safety and get them certified. And I would help them find find jobs throughout the Rhode Island area. Many of those people still work, you know, in kitchens around the Rhode Island area. Um, and, you know, I adore those people because they've, they've endured some really challenging um, circumstances that, you know, many of us just have never seen. And so they're really remarkable people um, and super, you know, um, just amazing uh, to see the work that they've done and sort of the trajectories of their careers. And That's so, awesome. oh, you, you had asked uh, how anyone could help. Well, if Absolutely. you were interested, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you were interested. So um, Chef Josh is the current chef there after I left and I went to Johnson Wales to teach again. Um, and so um, you, you can reach out there and reach out to him and see if you want to volunteer, do an internship there. Um, uh, it's basically adult education. And so you could help. Um, you go every, everything from basic knife skills to sauces, pan, pan sauces and work in a line and then getting people jobs, you know? Awesome. That's a great, it's a great thing to do, especially in the Providence, Rhode Island area, which is awesome. Um, now this is a, this is a nice one. What made you become a teacher at Johnson the Wales, right? I mean, you have all these other culinary colleges. Um, you have CIA, Johnson the Wales, and um, some community colleges as well for culinary. But what made you specifically choose Johnson the Wales and why be a teacher? Well, I, these kind of things sort of build. So, um, 
obviously I, I was living here when I did my master's after I left uh, with my master's that um, I took a couple jobs in the Providence area, still paying rent. Um, I think I, did I own a house yet? I don't remember if I bought a house yet, but um, I did at least buy it by the time I, I worked at the Genesis Center. But then obviously once you buy a house, you live here, right? So I was in Rhode Island and um, there, are, you know, Johnson Wells is the culinary school in Rhode Island. Oh yeah. Um, and so uh, uh, an opportunity came up uh, to teach at Johnson Wells, like there was a faculty role. Some people reached out to me and said, hey, you know, they're posting a, a teaching position and uh, we'd love to have you. you know, we're, we have a new concentration that we're, we want to develop on wellness and sustainability, and we think you'd be a great uh, asset to the team. And, um, you know, they're referring to my work uh, with social justice and food justice and workforce training. So I was like, well, so I applied. And so I had to do a bench test like everyone else, and I had to uh, do a lecture and all this. And, um, and you know, that's challenging and nerve-wracking, but it was exciting, and I got that job. And then um, like immediately after I was working on developing this concentration with a team of like-minded faculty. And so that concentration kind of bloomed and it, it blew up, it was huge. Um, I think we had over 600 students go through that. And uh, with, um, I, had, I used to survey them. And so the surveys, I have like over 400 surveys and only one complaint ever. And that was a student from Denver uh, who had to come here to take it. And that was the only complaint, like 100%, oh my God, this was the most amazing experience right. uh, I've ever had at Johnson Wales. And so that inspired the creation of a full degree program because there was a lot of interest and a lot of the feedback in those surveys is we want more programming like this. This is amazing. You know, um, the stuff we would do in that concentration is that right now, by the way, that is has grown into a minor and we have a new major coming this fall. But for the minor, it runs now. And so what I do is uh, I have an academic and I have a series of labs that students take. And in the academic, I take them, basically I survey the food system. So I take them all over Rhode Island. We go to different farms. We go to livestock farms. We go to crop farms. We go to the bay. I have a new bay trip where we're actually going to go quahogging and we'll go um, uh, oyster tasting like on the bay on a boat. And then um, we're going to uh, tour American Muscle. And then, that sounds um, awesome. Back. Yeah, yeah, we do pack out. So it's like an expedition. So we pack out all this food and we take it with us and then we prepare food with the fresh ingredients that are there. So, um, you know, at the, one of the farms, we always do tostadas. So we'll like prep the tostada shells before we go. and We'll make the crema and we'll get the pickles ready. Then we'll go and then we'll use the, the farm ingredients to make, you know, to cook the meat, the beans and all this. And then we'll add fresh vegetables, make slaws. And then we're, we're we're literally cooking at the farm and we're doing what we do is like service learning. So we're in groups and we rotate. And so some students are working with the, the Berkshire hogs, other students are working with the chickens or washing the eggs and um, we'll be clearing fields. And then uh, we rotate like every hour or so. And then I'm running a field kitchen. And so we're at, like out, you know, out in the wilderness and we're cooking and uh, we do this in this class all the time. And then students just rotate through and then we uh, we eat lunch together. We um there was there's one farm called Wild Harmony Farm. One year we were building a sugar shack, so that's like where you boil maple syrup um, down. Uh, and we had no walls when we started cooking. And by the time lunch was ready, we had built walls on this building. So like we built the building around us while we were cooking <laughs> in the building. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you just had to make sure no one dropped a nail in your soup. But otherwise, it was pretty cool. <laughs> 
wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, so in that academic, we also have a seafood unit, as I, I mentioned with oysters and stuff, we, we do um, diverse species day. So we bring in diverse underutilized species from the Rhode Island area and we fillet these things as yeah. everything from Shepard you know, John, uh, John Dory. Shepard uh, Patron does a great scup job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So scup is one of the fish we, I mean, those are so bountiful. You can hit them with your car driving home from work. You know, they're just, they're everywhere. Right. Um, the idea there is that instead of everyone eating tuna, cod, and, you know, all the same three fish and salmon, that you start actually eating fish that are overabundant in your waters instead of pressuring the same five species around the globe. Um, anyway, but that, that's just an academic. At the same time, we have, uh, we have a series of labs that students take. Um, the, the labs are, uh, one's a farm-to-table desserts lab where students actually source local products, work with local farmers, the ones they met in my academic that they take at the same time, and they create a multi-course uh, uh, dessert uh, and wine tasting uh, that they serve to those, those farmers and to, um, and to their chef at work and whoever they want to invite, it's a chef's table. We do the same thing, I teach the plant-based cuisine lab. We do the same thing there, um, sourcing local foods and creating multi-course menus that are locally sourced. Um, I said that twice, that's how important it is. And then, <laughs> and then we have uh, uh, conscious cuisine where they actually, students actually learn snout to tail cookery. So they actually get whole, animal, uh, whole animals in, we break them down and uh, there's um, usually uh, some big chefs that come in to talk to the class and to also go through that demo. So they'll break down hogs, they'll break down like, um, you'll be assigned rabbits and you have to, you know, it's an economic sustainability class. So you have to like utilize product, minimize waste. There's Absolutely. A food truck. Yeah, there's a food truck day in that class. It's pretty cool. And what we just added to make it a full minor is a course called Cultivating Local Food Systems, which is amazing. This new course um, will basically have students that hasn't even run yet, but students will be going out into their communities and working on good food projects for course credit. And so instead of showing up for lectures all the time, you'll actually be doing field work in this right. uh, capstone class. Which, and and people love that kind of a- They have a whole major coming. Yeah, I mean, people love that hands-on activity too. I mean, for people that don't really like sitting in classes, which it's a lot of us for culinary, um, going out to the fields and doing stuff like that, hands-on is definitely very, very cool. Well, so, you know, in some instances, maybe your personal interest is in farm, farm to schools. And so you can get a project together with teammates and you actually help uh, create a collaborate, uh, collaboration between a school system and a local farmer who can supply them with apples or grapes or right. you know, help supply part of their menu. Um, maybe your passion lies in restaurants. And so you want to actually institute um, a, a new composting program in a restaurant where you can actually show a restaurant, look, if you start composting and run this compost program, you'll have enough money that you'll save in tipping fees that you'll actually be able to pay your, your, um, your staff a dollar more an hour and you'll still be, um, be uh, retaining double digit numbers, like over $10,000 a year in some cases, based on just your dumpsters not being emptied as often or, uh, or needing to be as big. Um, so there, there are a lot of cool ways that it will tie into people's personal careers and interests. If you have an interest at the state house in making policy and advocating for sustainable food systems, you can do that too. Awesome. So while we're on this, uh, this topic here, you're actually running a, a new sustainability program and, uh, right. it's going to be coming to Johnsonville this fall, I believe. Uh, yep. so I mean, just go into some more detail about that. Well, so 
it's interesting. So that minor is really just the beginning, right? And that's so um, you're, a, you're a CABS graduate. And so the minor will be available to CAB students, but we're also going to do a major and we're, uh, it's called sustainable food systems because um, our food system is huge and there's so many players. And uh, the, the players uh, include everyone from supply chain managers to uh, farm to table chefs, um, uh, people who create rules like the policy and advocacy people, those who advocate for um, uh, you know, food security, food sovereignty, those who advocate for um, food system rights. And, uh, and th those who make those rules, those policymakers. Uh, you have public health, you have um, writing for development for those NGOs, and NGO is a non-governmental organization. Um, all, of these, uh, all of these sort of avenues, these all feed into the food system and they all are important players. And so this new program is going to have students doing that. What's pretty compelling about this program is that when you look at uh, food systems programs around the country, they're usually either agricultural based or they're, they're usually conservancy based. And ours is going to be culinary like food preparation based. So that means that instead of like if you go to a state school that's focusing on this, they might have one cooking class with one kitchen that you have to take. The rest of it's all field work and at the farm. Ours is primarily kitchen work with field work at the farm. But we have right. lots of kitchens, lots of chefs. That's our primary focus, where a lot of the other schools uh, have one cooking class. We have like 40, you know, kitchens, you know? So we, we're, we're going, no one else is doing what we're doing, which is pretty incredible. That is incredible. Speaks for itself, honestly. I mean, I know a lot of my friends um, are interested in uh, sustainability, I'm sorry, um, including myself. If I wasn't doing an internship in the fall, as of right now, uh, I would definitely be doing the sustainability. I mean, I love, the whole idea of it. And uh, you, you was a great teacher as well, running it. Well, you know, you, it's something you take with you throughout your career. You, you basically are going to be, you know, you're as a chef, you're an important, you're in an important position of power and responsibility because you can push advocacy. All right. You can advocate for different things. You can represent different things with your restaurant concept, with uh, your, your, your business, like um, motto slogans, how you um, and culture your uh, your workforce and how you take care of them. So you also have a social justice piece that you need to take care of your um, employees and you need to take care of your community. So you're not just someone sucking from the the economic uh, livelihood there. You're actually producing livelihoods and um, and supporting people. You know, in in our country we have the strangest thing um, where we you know, we have this sort of paradox or this dualism where we have the number one um, cause of death is related to dietary preventable, uh, preventable diseases such as obesity, but we also have a starvation problem. And so people can't eat while other people are overeating. And so there's something wrong with that. And we need to strike a balance. Um, and so a chef is in a position to do that. We're also in a position to source our products more responsibly and to know where they're coming from and not just to open some box that has a um you know like a, a distributor name on it but to actually know where our our products um hail from and what communities are affected by them it's called the political ecology of of our food products where are they coming from who is affected what are we supporting with our purchasing dollars absolutely that's awesome um so Backtrack a little bit. You come to Johnson Wells, right, as, as a teacher, um, and now you teach the international class. I'm not sure if that's what you started off on, but as of the past few years, I believe it's been international. What made you choose international and teach that class? Because I know you love it. 
Yeah, well, I, te I teach, a, gosh, I teach a lot of hot labs. I think maybe all but three of them. Um, and, and that's just because it's really, so part of it, you need to be flexible and to teach where people need you, right? So uh, I don't teach Garmage because we have a lot of people who do teach Garmage. So yeah. I don't, I've never needed to teach Garmage. But um, I, I do have an international experience uh, background. So I have an uh, international background when it comes to cooking. And I love to travel the world. Um, my wife's from Surabaya, Indonesia. So I travel to Southeast Asia uh, pretty much every other summer. I've even taken students to uh, Thailand and Singapore for a month uh, for study abroad. So. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well versed in international cuisine, um, far from any kind of masterhood, because no one is a master of international cuisine. It's the whole world, right. you know, it's not, Absolutely. but um, to have a good, a good grasp on that, it, it's exciting. And, you know, if you are excited about food and you love food and you're a real food adventurer, then you, you almost are a traveler at heart too, because you want to go, you don't want to try Singapore noodles from your local Americanized Chinese food restaurant. You want to try Singaporean street noodles on the streets of Singapore on a charcoal walk. Oh yeah, being made in front of you while you're sweating your butt off. That's <laughs> real. You know what I mean? And so there's a huge difference there in authenticity, and uh, and you know I just love that. And so of course international cuisine, I'd be um, you know I'd be really uh, disappointed if I taught at the university and didn't teach that class. Yeah, I mean it's an awesome class. Just going through it last trimester with you. I mean every day. So for those of you listening, the way the uh, classes run for Johnson Wells, it was in the trimester, but we're changing to uh, semesters next year. It was every uh, class ran nine days and it was Monday through Thursday. So every day in the international class would be a different part of the world. Um, you go to South Asia, uh, Southwest Asia, Southeast Asia, like different parts. And I wanted to get your take on it. What was your favorite day of teaching? My favorite day of teaching? Hmm, I don't know. It, you know what? Every, it's, it changes, and I'll tell you why. Because um, So you teach all these different groups and classes, and sometimes they execute a menu really well, and sometimes they have a bad day. So my favorite day is the day that class is on it. You know what I mean? And so they can be on it doing the Middle East. They can be on it doing Southeast Asia. They can be on it on China Day. Um, when they're on it, it's awesome. I, in that course, the Latin day, which is, I believe, the second to last day. It, you know, that, what, what's interesting, so as you go it, in the old international, the one that you took, uh, it's now the old one because the semesters, it's now 15 days. Yeah. But um, the, the way it works is as most of our students are coming from America and they have some experience with American cuisine, of course, and they have some experience with Latin cuisine because we see it, you know, often in America. Um, it is because it's part of the Americas, right? And so what we see less often are things from Africa and things from Asia. And so the, the further you go east in that class, the further you get towards China and Southeast Asia, the food's more alien to a lot of our students. And so then you start um, having, it's more challenging for them because um, if you've never had Mapo tofu before, you don't know it's a ground pork sauce and what the consistency should be like and how spicy it should be because you haven't had it but have you had a tamale a lot of our students have and so you know some of those quality things um, uh, in the China day require more guidance and that's why it's it's more challenging as you get near the end but in the nine-day lab day like I said day eight is Latin day after you did China so China usually the classes are like struggling a little bit to get the concepts. Oh, this is how a walk, you know, how to do it. It was a rough station. day. I'll tell you that from personal <laughs> experience. It was a rough day. 
Right. Well, you, you got to be everywhere at once. So you have like five things being cooked at the walk. So you got to be at the walk, but you're doing practicals too over there. So, you know, you're in lots of places and you got to show people how, you know, the walk is 240,000 BTUs. <laughs> you know, your stove at home is like 12,000. It's like the it's hot. It's hot. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. So um, you go from China, but then you go into the Latin day the next day. And so everyone cooks really well on the Latin day. Right. But, because it's like home base, you know, it just feels more home base versus these um, more exotic cuisines that a lot of the students hadn't been um, uh, exposed to. Now, some have, but I'm saying generally speaking, like as a whole group, most classes struggle when they get to the Asian days uh, compared to um, the days they're used to, like the Americas, uh, the Caribbean, and, um, and Latin America. Just a lot of students are comfortable with it. Awesome. Awesome. Now, this is a new part of the podcast, even though it's only the second episode, tried to switch it up a little bit. And I got two questions for you here from the public too. Now, one of the questions from the Ask the Chef uh, Dropbox I had was, in your opinion, what is the best type of pasta, which was asked by James Grell? The best top type of pasta? Well, it's got, I would assume, first cooked, right? <laughs> oh yeah oh no uh, some of my friends love snacking on uh some raw pasta some raw pasta they're just munching on it um oh, yeah. i don't like it because that gets stuck in your teeth then you know that hard you know, it just hurts my jaw after a while yeah I've, I've snacked on a piece of spaghetti before it always gets stuck on my molars i'm not a fan <laughs> um, but uh when it comes to pasta so i like semolina dough semolina dough pastas just have more tooth um, you know, fresh pasta, you can't really get uh, al dente, quote unquote, with fresh pasta, um, as you can with dry pasta. But with a semolina dough, you can get pretty darn close. And it has a toothiness that uh, is pretty satisfying. Flour-based um, pasta that's just flour, um, I think is just a little, even when you develop the gluten well uh, by kneading it thoroughly and resting it, um, it's just not as satisfying to bite into. Uh, versus a nice semolina, you know, olive oil, um, uh, egg, and, uh, you know, some salt in there um, as a dough. And when it comes to shapes, it's whatever. I like ravioli, you know, ravioli, that's like mul multiple raviolos, mm -hmm. uh, or a single raviolo that's like stuffed, like a maltation yeah. kind of style. Delicious. Um, I like tortellinis. I like all these things. Uh, but semolina dough by far is always better. That, that's a strong opinion because I know a lot of my friends actually, like if you don't have semolina, uh, right, it's easy to make flour, uh, flour pasta, just some eggs, some yep. olive oil, salt, and just put together, right? Um, yeah. I've actually made that a couple of times at home. I, I believe it comes out pretty well, but I have at mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the past restaurants I've worked at, I had the semolina pasta and just the difference, yep. like, like you said, the bite. It's not crunchy, but like it's a more like kind of uh, crisp bite. I don't want to say crisp. I don't know what the word yeah, is, well, but... Flowers like really it's soft got, and mushy. It's got a toothiness to it. Um, yeah. Working with flowers also, it, when you work with them side by side, you'll like the semolina because it's so easy to work with. And, you know, flower-based pasta, you just got to keep it dry, keep it dry, keep it dry. Um, because it, 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 you know, can get, it basically is wet, tacky, and it'll stick together. It's just a little, it's a little more high maintenance. Um, I did a demo just the other day for the Alumni Network, and I did, um, what did I do? I made the semolina flour dough ahead and I did the white flour dough on camera you know just with the food processor and then uh, I, need, I had my son kneading that one it's easier to knead the flour one uh, than the semolina one but I did that one ahead of time um, but yeah I, 
I I can't apologize for it. Semolina's better. <laughs> That's some camera magic right there you had going on. Because I was watching that live video and I couldn't tell. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh no, yeah. Well I I, exp I explained it. I said, uh so this one's flower. And here's the semolina one. Semolina one's better. Flower one my son will need. And then he just start he's five, so he's just smacking the thing. That's pretty fun. <laughs> and now the uh for the second question that I had here was this kind of a kind of a tacky one. What is the best hangover meal, the hangover cure meal that you would think, like go back to college, what did you have when you had a big hangover the next day? And this was asked by Chris Massis. Yeah, I don't know if Chris, huh? So I don't know if uh I don't, so are all hangovers created equal? That that's the first thing you have to ask I don't, yourself. I mean, I can't are all that hangovers one. created equal? So you can wake up and just be zapped for energy and be thirsty, and you can wake up and wish you were dead and be praying to God that you'll never drink again, not one more drop ever. <laughs> just please, and then and you could be getting sick till nothing but green gunk is coming out. Um, for that. There is no, there is no, it's just pain, <laughs> pain and endurance. Um, you can't even have a sip of Gatorade without getting sick again. If it's just dehydration or something, then you need to rehydrate. And you also, um, I don't know, you need something with potassium. So avocados, bananas, these things are all pretty, pretty rich in uh, potassium. So can help get your muscles moving again. Um, if you want to be all, you know, hipster about it, make avocado toast or something. There you go. <laughs> And there you have it, the hangover cure, mark it down, copyrighted, Chef Lewis saying it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Put it on right. a beret and have some avocado toast. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you for this uh, time, Chef Lewis, out of this busy quarantine that we have going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, it was a pleasure. I, I was really excited to, uh, to do this. And absolutely. Thank I'm excited for, to hear it. Thank you for coming on. And I uh, just want to say that every Friday that we will be dropping a podcast from a different chef and Next week, we will have a restaurant owner that owns Cafe Panache in Ramsey, New Jersey. So stay tuned for that one. I will reveal the name sometime during the week on my Instagram of the Yes Chef podcast. Thank you, Chef Lewis. Awesome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Appreciate awesome. it.